Hello and welcome to today's podcast from the Video Journal of Neurology. We are an open access video journal sharing the latest news in neurology across all major disciplines. Our regular podcasts bring you exclusive insights from renowned experts on hot topics in their fields. In this episode, key opinion leaders will debate the value of bridging therapy for endovascular thrombectomy following recent reports from several large-scale randomised control trials. While the use of intravenous thrombolysis prior to thrombectomy is the current recommended standard of care approach, many experts have questioned if its use truly results in better outcomes. The non-inferiority design of many trials in this space has led to debates on the best way forward, given the challenges that come with interpreting non-inferiority study findings. Professionals have pointed out that if thrombectomy came first, there would be insufficient evidence to prove that thrombolysis should be added on, but removing an established treatment from the standard of care approach is much more difficult. In this podcast, we will hear from a number of experts on the latest thinking in the field. To start us off, Manon Kapelhoff and Johannes Kaismacher share the findings of the IRIS collaboration pooled analysis, which looked into data from six recent randomized controlled trials evaluating direct thrombectomy versus thrombectomy with prior IVT. So the, the IRIS pooling was a collaboration between the six trials, randomized controlled trials, that compared um, direct endovascular treatment without preceding intravenous alteplase to intravenous alteplase um, or tenexaplase in a small number of patients uh, followed by endovascular treatment. Um, because right now, um, the thrombolysis prior to endovascular treatment is a standard of care because the uh, initial trials proving the value of endovascular treatment uh, only studied it as an addition to uh, the lytic rather than comparing it to the lytic. Um, so these six trials were performed to study if we can maybe drop the lytic from the treatment paradigm. Um, and they found kind of conflicting results, right? So uh, two of them done in China found non-inferiority of um, the treatment without thrombolysis. Um, and the other uh, four were inconclusive. So with these trial teams from the six trials uh, from China, Japan, Australia, Switzerland, and the Netherlands, um, we uh, collaborated to merge all of those data and um, perform the pooled analysis. In total, there were over 2,000 patients uh, pooled. Um, and we, uh, or actually Johannes, performed an international survey study uh, asking physicians from all over the world what they would um, see as a, as a usable non-inferiority boundary. And that was 5% difference in, in functional independence rate. So most of the physicians said that... Um, uh, if if the lytic was withheld, they would accept a maximum difference in the rate of functional independence um, of 5%. Um, uh, so this was our non-inferiority boundary, um, which means that the 95% confidence interval around the effect estimates for outcome can't go below this 5%. And the 5% translated to an... Um, lower confidence interval of the uh, justice common odds ratio of 0 0.82. Um, this is important because this, this boundary is quite relevant because it determines when you call your finding uh, significantly non-inferior or when you call it inconclusive. Um, so we took this boundary, we pulled the data of all the patients, um, and we found that the um, differences in outcomes were very small. 
um, the results were actually very similar, but um, the lower boundary of the confidence interval was actually at 0.76 rather than 0.82. It was also above, the, the upper limit was also above one and the point estimate was um, uh, slightly towards benefit of the uh, treatment paradigm with lytic. Um, but so it was a non-statistically significant difference just below the non-inferiority boundary. Um, so that means that despite 2,000 patients being included, the results are still um, inconclusive. Um, what we did see is that uh, A, so there was also no benefit of adding the lytic. Um, B, there was a higher rate of successful reperfusion during endovascular treatment with uh, uh, intravenous thermolysis, um, but there was also a higher rate of any intracranial hemorrhage, um, not a higher rate of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. Um, so it seems that, like there's a bit of a trade-off, like the, the results are really similar. There's still some heterogeneity going on, making the confidence interval so wide that we can't say it's non-inferior. And there's a bit of a trade-off between um, uh, more successful reperfusion with lytic but also more hemorrhages. Um, this is this is what we uh, found in the main analysis, um, um, and so our our main conclusion was that um, despite the inconclusive results, um, uh, there also was no benefit of adding the lytic, and the the treatment effect was around two percent. Um, uh, two percent higher chance of achieving functional independence at 90 days with the lytic, which would mean that 57 patients would be would be treated. So the number needed to treat would be 57 with the lytic to get one additional patient with functional independence. Um, this is quite small compared to the effect of endovascular treatments, because there, like I think most of the people in the field will know, the number needed to treat is something like 3.4 or so. Um, uh, so that is really the treatment that is going to help patients. And uh, that is what we should be focusing on. Having those results, you have two options. I think you can go down a more formal conservative approach and you can go into a more, let's say, philosophical approach, I would say. So the more conservative approach would be what has been also done by the ESO ESMIN guidelines say that you haven't reached non-inferiority and that was your goal. And by that, that means uh, unequivocally that intravenous thrombolysis plus endovascular treatment or thrombectomy uh, will remain the standard of care. And that is, that is the recommendation. And when that came out, some people criticized that the non-inferiority boundary was set too low. Uh, it was at 1.5%. Um, which is the minimal clinically important differences um, for stroke trials. Um, but now we have the same results, so an inconclusive result, uh, not showing non-inferiority for 5%. So these people will argue that um, these data unequivocally lead to the fact that intravenous thrombolysis plus thrombectomy should remain the standard of care. Then on the other hand, and as Manon pointed out that we know it's clearly not superior. We know that the point estimate points toward a very small effect. And you can always go back and say, okay, why were the initial thrombectomy trials, like the initial successful thrombectomy trials, were comparing thrombectomy um, plus IVT versus IVT, or if the patients were uh, eligible? 
And that, I think, was due to the case that the initial not successful trials in thrombectomy tested um, IVT versus endovascular treatment in general, at least two of the three unsuccessful ones. And if their thrombectomy or endovascular treatment would have been successful, nobody actually would have questioned if you can give IVT uh, in this scenario before uh, endovascular treatment. So I think um, depending on the sequence and the history of the trials, uh, you would have gone down a different road. You have either uh, tested superiority of intravenous thrombolysis before thrombectomy, or as it is now, you have tested non-inferiority. And would you have tested superiority, like Monon said, there is no statistical significant benefit. And then the interpretation would be that thrombectomy alone or endovascular treatment alone would be the standard of care. So having this in mind, uh, I think there are two, two approaches to these results. Um, but we have to also stick to our formal approach. And uh, we used a non-inferiority boundary, which was not chosen freely, but that has been backed up by some data indicating that this is the most chosen answer of an acceptable uncertainty physicians around the world are willing to accept. So we also have to, to go with that. Yeah. And then um, the question is also, I think, a bit broader than than just this topic of, of uh, intravenous thrombolysis prior to endovascular treatment for stroke, right? Because um, we're in a situation where an additional treatment seems to have a small effect, but it's not proven to have a statistically significantly um, uh, positive effect. Um, do you, if you, if you choose to stay with that treatment for all of medicine, um, you can add an unlimited number of treatments, um, which will lead to increasing healthcare costs, right? So at which point are you going to say, we're going to uh, leave the treatment out um, uh, if it doesn't have an additional effect um, or if we're not sure whether it has an additional effect? That's a, I think it's a question that is bothering many fields in medicine um, right now. And also, I think in, in, in the light of uh, drug shortage uh, for Alteplase affecting at least some countries, um, it is important to to prioritize patients in a way. And if we now know from IRIS data that the point estimate is first non-significant and it, the point estimate is uh, plus 2%, and we compare that to the overall IVT versus placebo population, it turns out that um, if you're going with the numbers there, that the population uh, of patients with large vessel anterior occlusion uh, stroke um, is certainly benefiting less from IVT than the overall IVT versus placebo population. So if you want to prioritize in such a scenario, um, it has become clear uh, having this data that probably these patients are the ones uh, to skip IVT. Urs Fischer and Eva Roos, who were also involved in the IRS collaboration, comment on the challenges of non-inferiority trials in stroke and future plans to further address this question. We have randomized 2,500 patients and uh, in the, all these trials, and still the difference in between the two treatment groups is very small. So basically, we could not prove that there is a reason to skip intravenous thrombolysis in all these patients. However, the benefit of the bridging thrombolysis is very tiny and very small. 
in the IRIS collaboration, there was so far no clear subgroup which had a major benefit of either direct mechanical thrombectomy or bridging thrombolysis. However, we will perform further subgroup analysis in order to see whether there are patients who have a benefit either of direct mechanical thrombectomy or bridging thrombolysis. Yeah, the issue we are looking at right now is that um, we are doing a study. We were doing six trials and now we're doing the meta-analysis. And what we are trying to do is look whether there is still a, a benefit of the intravenous treatments. Um, and, and, and for getting rid of the treatments, um, the, statist the statistics are um, much more complex, but they, 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 um, uh, the statistics for, for non-inferiority makes it also harder to get rid of, uh, let's say, a standard treatment which is already there. And that's because we are much more afraid of, of losing a treatment which was proven effective in the past. Um, and you're afraid of, of losing that because of, of your, you're doing your study and you're doing your meta-analysis and you, you're getting the wrong answer. So you, you want to be very sure that you're quite, you're absolutely certain that you can get rid of this, this proven effective treatment. So the statistics for a, a non-inferiority design are different than for a superiority design. So. Let's imagine that the world around. Let's imagine that that um, that we would have at first uh, endovascular treatments, and that right now somebody would come along and say, "Hey, I have a potent drug, which is a lytic drug, and uh, you should add it to endovascular treatments." Um, if that would have happened, and we would have used the normal statistics like we always do, the five percent confidence limit and uh, the ninety-five percent confidence limit and five percent difference, then then we would have ended up with six trials showing no. Uh, beneficial effects of of the intravenous thrombolysis. We would have done the meta-analysis, which have shown the same results, no beneficial effect of thrombolysis, and we would have never added intravenous thrombolysis to the standard treatment of endovascular treatment. But now the world is around. The world is that we have the standard treatment is the combination, and with with the current current trials and with the current meta-analysis, we can't say that the combination treatment. Um, uh, of let's say we can't say that direct endovascular treatment uh, is as good as 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 uh, having the combination treatments. Um, so we we have to stick to the to the standard treatment, which is the combination. That's that's the real world. Questions are also arising on the potential to personalize treatment. Tan Nguyen shares her arguments for skipping thrombolytics in patients who may undergo extracranial stenting. Several randomized trials evaluated whether giving intravenous thrombolysis in addition to thrombectomy uh, compared well to thrombectomy alone. And so the designs of the trial were to look at whether thrombectomy alone was not inferior to intravenous thrombolysis plus thrombectomy. And if you look at the strict margins of non-inferiority margins, around 5%, then overall, the summation of these trials would suggest that thrombectomy alone was not non-inferior, meaning, if you had to translate it, that one should still give intravenous thrombolysis. And this is very important in primary stroke center patients because these trials do not apply to the primary stroke center patients where you should give intravenous thrombolysis because they're waiting for the transfer to the endovascular center, so they should have the intravenous thrombolytic. The majority of these trials were conducted in endovascular capable centers. So the patients were presenting to the mothership and then they were being evaluated. So 
Yes, absolutely. If you present to the primary stroke center and you're eligible with a large vessel occlusion, you absolutely should get intravenous thrombolysis if you're eligible. Now, the question is, are there subgroups of patients in which one may think twice before they give the intravenous thrombolytic uh, prior to the thrombectomy? And my contention was I was arguing in favor of the tandem occlusion subset. And um, in these patients, sometimes they might need a carotid stent. There's a plaque that just ruptured and it caused an occlusion. And the mechanism for treating these patients might favor antiplatelet because there's some data looking at antiplatelet drugs, GP2B3 inhibitors, for example, to see if they might confer more benefit. And we, we are seeing some data emerge about that. Um, they haven't been compared to head-to-head with alteplase, granted, but that, that uh, would be an interesting study. In speaking with my own uh, opponent, Professor Urs Fischer, and his mentee, Dr. Johannes Kaismacher, they also felt that we haven't shown the superiority of bridging thrombolysis compared to thrombectomy alone, i.e. we don't know if we have any more benefit of giving alteplase or tenecteplase, if that's what your current situation is, in addition to thrombectomy. We just showed that it's not non-inferior, but if you're going to give this drug that's that potent, you know, do you do you want to see a signal of superiority? All we have shown is it's not non-inferior, and so that's the, another very interesting question that uh, that we think about these days, especially in the setting of tandem occlusion, when there might be more interesting medications that we could give that can help in the event you need a stent, because some of these patients you just need to stent them because they occlude no matter what you do. Uh, balloon angioplasty, thrombectomy, they just shut down again. And so in these patients, you may not have a choice, but you want to give an antiplatelet agent, in which case in the setting of a patient who just received alteplase, it's a bit harrowing because the guidelines say, well, you're not supposed to give anything for 24 hours. And what if you have a bleed? And, and some guidelines give some exceptions, but still it's harrowing because you're kind of going against the guidelines by giving more drug to keep a stent open. And the argument will be, well, by then the alteplase will be gone, but still, you know, you can't, you can't rely on that. And, and you need to know that, you know, you're doing everything you can to minimize bleeding risk because we've all had these, we've all had patients who've had symptomatic hemorrhages because we gave too much drug. And so, so we have to be very careful about which patients we give the drug to and in which subgroups, because some subgroups may benefit from different drugs rather than alteplase. One would ask, well, if and this is what uh, this is an idea that was espoused by Dr. Kaismacher and Dr. Fisher, is that well, if thrombectomy came first, right, and then along and then next came alteplase. Would you design a trial for non-inferiority or would you want to know that if you're going to add this drug, that it's superior? And so all the trials were designed as non-inferiority trials, which is fair. But if you're going to add a drug, especially in these certain subgroups where there's a certain element of risk of adding more drugs, then then I would want a superiority trial or a head-to-head with another's medicine. Because I think we need to optimize the patency of these stents because one in five may occlude, which was found in a nice French study by Allard et al. and stroke. And so um, we want to optimize and think about tailored regimens for each subgroup of patients. Those were all the updates we had for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast. And if you found it useful, we would love it if you could leave a review. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast app, including Spotify, Apple and Podbean. 
Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Neurology to join in the conversation and visit vjneurology.com for the latest updates in the field. Until next time. Thank you.